0: Thank you very much. Is this is uh, Uretzi Peralta Lucia Lucero. Thank you so much. Okay, we're uh, here today for our oral argument, and thank you for having us. I'd like to introduce attorneys uh, Eugene Cress. Is that correct? Okay, thank you. And you have reserved five minutes for rebuttal. That's correct. And Nicole Wiggins. Thank you. And will uh, Mr. Mishka, thank you for coming. Will you be uh, arguing any? No, ma'am. Okay, thank you for coming. Thank you. All right, you may begin.
1: the court. On Friday, April 24th, 2020, at approximately 2.30 in the afternoon, Jenny Thomas was taking a walk around her neighborhood when she saw a body lying in a ditch off Overdorf Road. That's located in Hamilton County, just north of Indianapolis. The decedent was later identified as David Fouts. Uh, They made that identification uh, um, in the forensic lab at around 10.30 in the evening on April 24th. Uh, Once they identified him, they found out uh, his address was in Pendleton, and they went out to the home and they found his wife was there, Katrina Fouts, and notified her of uh, the death. Uh, That took place at about 12.30 in the morning on April 25th. (coughs) On April 25th, 2020, an autopsy was performed by Dr. Thomas Sozio, a forensic pathologist, and no cause of death was determined in this case.
2: Did they ultimately ever determine the cause of death?
1: They did not. Dr. Sozio stated he was confident this was a foul play case, based on some of the evidence we'll discuss uh, throughout the argument. Therefore, he reported the manner of death as homicide by unspecified means. He theorized that David could have died by either ingesting poisoned mushrooms or asphyxia, strangling.
2: They ruled out blunt force trauma or anything like that.
1: Yeah, there was no other obvious form of death no gunshot wounds here uh, no injuries to the body Um, just simply narrowed it down to those two uh, uh, theories
3: what was the evidence of strangulation or possible strangulation
1: that's an interesting question judge because there was none
3: but that was, was part of the possible cause of death
1: yes he just theorized since there's nothing else we found mushrooms in his stomach And since there's no gunshot wounds, blunt force trauma, or anything like that, we also theorize it could be asphyxia. I think there may have been some uh, forensic uh, evidence that could have theoretically, it's always theoretically in this case, that's one of the difficulties, could have been asphyxia. But the primary evidence of strangulation, things like a broken hyatoid bone, I think it's called, I'm not sure, Uh, marks around the throat, those types of things were not evident. In fact, uh, uh, their pathologist was uh, questioned uh, very strongly about his asphyxia theory and there was no answer ever given.
3: And there were also possibility of poisoning by the mushrooms. Again,
1: that's the interesting part about this case. There was no poison found.
2: I'm sorry, go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt, you. go ahead. Oh, that's okay. I was going to ask a question. You raised the issue of corpus delicti a term we hear frequently. Um, how does all of this, or does it, tie into your concerns about the failure to establish a corpus delecti, and what do you, what do you refer to when you say the, that that wasn't shown?
1: We raised the corpus delecti issue for this reason. There was an alleged confession Put into evidence, and as you read in my brief, that's that was one it of a r-
3: confession or admission, because there's a difference.
1: It was called a confession by the state um, during a preliminary hearing. In closing argument, they called it an admission. I think.
3: I think it was the reverse, if if I'm correct,
1: and that you they agreed
3: be- that it was it was not a confession pre-trial, but during closing argument. The prosecutor referred to it as a confession. Is there a difference in the legal effect?
1: Judge, I don't know that I can answer that question. Um, I think you are correct. There is a legal difference, but in this case, we're relying on our belief that it was called to the jury a confession.
2: Because of the prosecutor's closing argument, or were there other reasons for it?
1: Because of his closing argument.
2: If he had not referenced in the closing that it was a confession, would you still be making that same argument? Is it the substance or the name calling, I guess is what I'm saying. Mm.
1: Our argument is it's the characterization. Okay. Um, The statement came in through Detective Lockhart and really it was somewhat of an innocuous statement Um, and could have been interpreted certainly as an admission, or I know you know I'm a suspect.
3: So tell me the difference, though, between what an admission is and what a confession is.
1: I don't know that there's a difference.
3: Is it it not that the confession would be an admission to all of the elements of a crime, whereas an admission is something less? And I'm just positing that, I'm not saying that that is or is not true, but I want to know how how you feel about that, since you're alleging that by calling it a confession, at closing argument, it was prosecutorial misconduct.
1: I think you're right, Judge. I think that um, an admission is, in the way you described it, slightly different than a confession. Our argument will be that this was called a confession. In fact, the last words to the jury were, by the Deputy Prosecutor, that essentially it was a confession, that it was direct evidence. Um, This was an entirely circumstantial evidence case.
2: Are are you suggesting that in a circumstantial case you, you can't bring in a confession? I mean, aren't there a lot of crimes that are, that are circumstantial? Like, I guess why does it matter whether we call it an admission, a confession, the act of saying yes I know when asked the question, why, why does that matter in this case? Without the name calling of it, why, why does it matter um, that that becomes an issue in this case with circumstantial evidence?
1: So. The interesting aspect of this case is I think we briefed four issues, essentially, but they're all so interwoven that this is why your question is a very good one, Judge Rob, because without the confession there's simply no evidence that a crime was committed.
0: And that goes back to your corpus delecti argument.
1: That's that, correct, and I'm uh, sorry I didn't uh, a, elaborate on that, but that's what, what I was going to get to, is mm-hmm. that yes, if there's no evidence of a crime, the confession can't come in. Um, if it is a confession, there's no evidence of a crime, so it should have been kept out. Mm-hmm. And that's why um, ultimately we'll get to the point where the procedural protocol was not followed in this case. In other ex- words, there was ex- no sc- objection. Wait,
0: what do you mean by that procedural protocol?
1: By no that. objection, no request for an admission. During trial. During trial? I'm sorry?
0: There was no procedural uh, 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 during the trial.
1: During the trial. Gotcha. Go ahead. Uh, And so we've briefed this as a fundamental error case, and we know how narrow the exception is. We know that we must show that there was prosecutorial misconduct, uh, and that we must show that that prosecutorial misconduct placed Mrs. Fouts in such grave peril that we believe the trial court should have intervened Um, and in my brief I made note of the fact that the trial court did intervene during the rebuttal closing argument at one point. Uh, The deputy prosecutor was uh, talking about some, some of the forensic evidence. And there's an acronym called Sludge. I can't remember what all the words mean, but it has something to do with uh, pathology um, uh, in determining cause of death and that sort of thing. And he was um, uh, using the wrong word for the D letter. He was calling it dehydration when it actually has to do with uh, diarrhea, I think. Um, and the judge just simply stopped him and said, "Counsel's approach," he said. Stop mischaracterizing the evidence. You're 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 saying it wrong. Uh, he corrected him. They admonished him. Uh, I think they corrected in front of the jury, and then he went on. Our point is is that the gravity of the peril in a case that is entirely circumstantial, but for this purported confession, when you call it a confession with your last words to a jury, that bell can't be unrung. So
2: t- I'm sorry. Go ahead. You go ahead. So, are you saying that in any case where cause of death is uncertain, um, confessions can't come in? No. Then then what was it about this one where there was an uncertain cause of death and the statement by the, the defendant? What makes this different than other circumstantial cases?
1: In other circumstantial cases with uncertain causes of death, uh, many of them at least have some other evidence that a crime was committed. The issue that we deal with in this case is there's simply no evidence that a crime was committed. Um, That's not true. (laughs) Well, I'll put it the way the trial judge put it. Being dead doesn't mean there's a killing.
3: There was evidence of, um, that, that he, this body had been moved to that location, that, the, that the, the victim did not die in that location, but had been moved. There was evidence that at some point, um, evidence of ankles having been tied or taped. There was um, DNA evidence on, on the, this lift that was in the garage. So when you say there was no other evidence, Um, I think you're going a little too far.
1: I agree, Judge, and with apologies, I think that was an overbroad statement. The reality is there is that evidence, but none of it connects to the appellant.
3: There was DNA evidence, so there was DNA found on um, this lift that included Mm -hmm. the victim's DNA, um, your client's DNA, and... um, Hopkins. Is that his name? Hopkins. His DNA were all found on this lift.
1: So I think you're correct that Terry Hopkins, the co-defendant, his DNA was found on the lift and I think Mrs. Fouts DNA was found on the lift itself but the decedent's DNA was only found on a mat that they found in Terry Hopkins' vehicle. I don't think his DNA was actually on the lift cart that they retrieved from what they call the country house in Lapel I think. Um, well, how would it,
3: you explain that DNA on a mat and a trunk?
1: David Fouts came in contact with that mat? I, I mean, uh, it, there's almost no doubt that occurred. Uh, but again, it's not evidence that points to Mrs. Fouts. Um, well,
3: there was other evidence of all this phone conversations that were going on between... Uh, the co-defendant and your client, evidence of a track phone. Um, there is lots of circumstantial evidence. I mean, this is a circumstantial evidence case. Would you agree? I agree. So that all comes into to play here.
1: Alright, so here's my take on, on this the phone evidence, the GPS. Terry Hopkins and Katrina Fouts were so close, they referred to each other with the acronym, I'm your kid from another mother. This was a second father to her. Terry Hopkins was a retired police detective who unfortunately passed away during the pendency of this case. Um, he lived in the Richmond area uh, uh, Mrs. Fouts lived in both Pendleton and in a house in Lapel, which they called the country house. These phone communications were not unusual for these two. They were very close. They contacted each other all the time. They're but they moved. also
3: found that she was um, searching how to disappear. How, she had $40,000 on her at the time of her arrest. I mean, there are a lot of other facts that pointed to the evidence or the the evidence points to the fact that uh, there was this conspiracy.
1: Judge, it's all, it's speculation, it's conjecture, it's everything else. Now, I agree that those
3: facts. Circumstantial evidence. um,
1: Those facts you just described are what you could call bad facts. But this case, the, the, the death occurred in April of 2020. Uh, the alleged statement to Detective Lockhart took place in May 26 of 2020. Uh, at May, on May 26, Katrina Faust had to have been certain she was a suspect, and so you're correct. She got a track phone because they had they had her phone, which she gave up voluntarily to search forensically. And these searches that she made were in late June and early July of 2020. She was not arrested until September of 2020. So. Uh, the state calls this evidence of flight, but she had plenty of opportunity to flee. She did not. They did not arrest her. She was a suspect for four months. They didn't arrest her for uh, at least two months after the last search she made. Uh, Doing those searches, she may have learned that it's good to have a lot of cash on hand because you may need to pay bail, you may need to pay an attorney, there's a variety of reasons for that money. But it still does not point to a crime being committed, and I would again go back and look at the timing of these searches with respect to the entire investigation, and I believe that you'll see that it's just another piece of evidence that's easily explainable. And my time is just about up, so. I
2: have one question. If, if sure. um, Is it your position, then, that, that once they decided she was a suspect, or.
4: Thank you. Sorry, I just wanted to make sure we were okay okay there on the audio. May it please the court. Your honors, this case presented a web of facts, and that was largely circumstantial. All of these pieces of circumstantial evidence and this web of facts that the investigators and prosecutors presented ended up in a whole picture that this jury received.
2: Well, let me, let me ask you sort the question that I asked poorly last time. <laughs> Is it because once you decided she was the killer and looked back, all of those things made sense, as opposed to looking at all of those things to lead you to the decision that she was the killer?
4: And I'm not I'm not sure I understand your question your Honor and whether, sure. and whether that matters I guess in the sense of the jury okay. um, the jury gets the facts as they have been determined as the state presents them the, this is what happened okay. so whether they decide you know if what when the office, of when, an when police decided you know this is our main suspect okay. is largely irrelevant when we're evaluating the jury verdict okay
0: but you have a body that is unknown causes of death.
4: We do so not have a certain cause of death. We have essentially two, three options here, Your Honor. Okay.
0: So then these things, I think that's what Maggie's trying to get at, <laughs> is these things that are loaded on as circumstantial as part of the investigation, but they weren't discovered till after the
4: body correct the okay. body is the first thing really that lets us know something went wrong here and the okay. fact that the body is discovered first doesn't taint anything that comes after and the evidence discovered the that we get from that body from the autopsy is certainly evidence we could use number 1 to introduce the defendant's statements and number 2 to prove her guilt at trial
3: okay. so it's Bringing up the statements, is there a difference between an admission and a confession, and what legal effect does it have or not have in this case?
4: There is a technical legal difference in the sense that a confession is a statement that admits to all elements of a crime. An admission is a statement that admits to maybe some elements of a crime. Whether the jury is aware of this difference is perhaps—I mean, it— the layman's understanding of that is probably different than the attorney's understanding of that. Technically, there is a legal difference, and it also doesn't really matter in this case, I don't believe, Your Honor. And there why. was no objection, was there, wh- There was during no trial. objection to the admission of the statement, mm-hmm. and there was also no objection during closing. And the reason, Your Honor, I say that I don't think it matters in this case is, number one, this was not a bait and switch by the prosecutor, because if you look closely at the closing, he references the statement as an admission to Detective Lockhart, not as a quote-unquote confession. And the reason also that it doesn't matter is either way, the statement was going to come into evidence. And once that it does, it is up to the jury to decide whether that is an admission, a confession, whether it doesn't matter, whether they think that they don't believe her. It's up to them once the statement comes in and the statement was going to come in either under corpus delicti or as a statement of a party opponent. So in this case, there was no error in the admission of that statement. Reference to that statement <clears throat> was also not error because he did not pull a bait and switch, and even if that had happened, the, admission wa- the statement came in properly, and it was up to the jury to weigh that statement, which they did. Also, in looking at the prosecutorial misconduct angle, as um, judge stated here, we're under fundamental error, there was no objection, they acquitted her of the murder, so we're looking at a lot of facts here that show that this statement in closing did not have a large impact on the jury. Even if you take that out, there's all this circumstantial evidence that we have here to prove defendant's involvement in this case. So
3: I have a question about the conspiracy to commit murder charge. What evidence was there of the overt act that um, the defendant did to show her commitment to this conspiracy?
4: Yes, Your Honor, and so we charged and instructed on three overt acts, and I think the best one that proves this case would be, and this is defendant's own statements, she admits there was, that she had an agreement with Terry <clears throat> to purchase this hydraulic lift for her. He was purchasing it for her. They put it together together on the evening of the 23rd. DNA is then found all over the lift cart and the mat, and we're talking April 23rd. This is after David's gone missing and after he's likely been dead. So the fact that his DNA turns up on these items later means those items came into contact with his dead body and her statements place between her and Terry an agreement to purchase these items that are later discovered to have been used to move his body and that establishes a conspiracy to commit murder. what was the date of death uh,
0: Supposed death, I suppose.
4: <laughs> I don't you know, Your Honor, they didn't give an exact date of death. So the body's found around two thirty on April twenty fourth. That's when it's found. And we know that there's fly eggs on the body. Fly eggs tell us the body's been dead for at least a day. One day to three days. So at two thirty on April twenty fourth, the body David's been dead for at least twenty four hours, most likely more. Okay. So and we know that Terry's purchasing that hydraulic lift cart, on the 23rd, right about the time that we know, you know, best case scenario, he has already been dead. He is dead. So, So, I'm sorry, Your Honor, go ahead.
3: Is that the evidence then that was used to show that she failed to report um, (coughs) the body?
4: Yes, that also proves the failure to report, because at that point, she knows that he has passed. Was there any other evidence to
3: show that she knew that he was dead and didn't report that?
4: There's a lot of more circumstantial evidence vis-a-vis her statements, Your Honor. The wedding ring. Um, Tell me
3: about the red wedding ring.
4: The wedding ring, so when they first notify her that David has passed, me, mind you, she never called the police. Never call. She ceased calling. So they were David. living
3: together at the time.
4: They lived together at the time. Then the in the 24 hours previous, she had contacted him 27 times. All of a sudden, on the night of the 21st, after 2:30, 2:45 a.m., never calls him again. Never sets off any alarm bells. Isn't calling friends and family. Never calls the police. They notify her. So the the mere fact that she quits contacting him that she doesn't sound any alarm bells. And the wedding ring, what it, tell me about the wedding and the ring. In the wedding ring, so when they do notify her, she asks, um, she asks the officers to find his wedding ring, says she doesn't have it. Months later, they find it in a cabinet at the country house, in a Ziploc bag, in a sugar jar, with a ribbon tied around it. Um, so, all these things start to add up to kind of play into her consciousness of guilt here and the fact that she never reports him missing. And she also picks up his phone, talks to his boss, makes a call to his oper- to David's operations center. Now, we, we do not know what she said to them, but we do know that the boss then receives notification oh we've spoken to the employee everything's fine well we know that couldn't have been david so what did she say what date was that that was on the 23rd your honor so she speaks to his boss on the 22nd speaks to his general operations center on the 23rd and the boss testifies he subsequently then notified that you know, no cause for concern, we've spoken with the employee. Oh, and by the way, he wants two weeks off. <laughs> so, a lot is not adding up here, and the jury was given all this information very slowly and very methodically so that they could absorb the pieces of this puzzle that the investigators had placed together. So there's more, <clears throat> I mean, and there's there's more evidence in her statements <clears throat> and in her actions. As we talked about earlier, the internet searches, the track phone, the cash, Um, and the context of the statement that she made to Detective Lockhart is a little lost in the briefing here, Your Honors. It's important to note when she said that, um, she's talking to him about, she wants, she's asking him for time to wind up her affairs. She wants time to find forever homes for her dogs and someone to take care of her dad. Now, why would she need someone to take care of her dad? Terry Hopkins was the person who took care of her dad. Let
2: me ask you a procedural question. If we're talking about fundamental error, what, what evidence needs to be shown uh, as opposed to uh, someone who's made an objection? Why is that uh, a substantial hurdle? Um, to get over to declare something a fundamental
4: error? We make it harder because the idea is to incentivize attorneys to object so that trial courts can make rulings in real time with all the information available to them, Your Honor. And why
2: do you think even if there
4: might have been some error, we
2: don't reach that threshold
4: here? And I'm not saying you agree there was any error, but I'm saying… So in terms of admission of the statement, Your Honor? Mm -hmm. Well, for one thing, there's plenty, even even if you take that statement out, there's plenty of other evidence to prove her guilt. So in terms of when we look at finding error in a trial, um, Indiana has a harmless error rule. So we always look to see the effect of the evidence presented and what effect that could have on the jury as a whole. We don't look at one piece of evidence in isolation. So looking at this as a whole, even if you remove this statement to Detective Lockhart, there's an enormous amount of evidence that still places her at the scene with DNA, you know, on on the things that were used with the body, agreements between her and Terry, tons of communication between her and Terry, the GPS that puts them together at certain times of the night. So even if you take that out, we don't rise to the level of making this a fair trial impossible situation, that fundamental and that's error. The burden. What's that, Your Honor? And that's the burden. Indeed. The, the burden with fundamental error is that it essentially made a fair trial impossible, that the trial judge should have stood up and raised, you know, raised the red flag and said, hey, we can't do this. This is America. This isn't how it works. And that didn't happen here, and it shouldn't have happened here because there was no error. Um, and, as you, you know, even if there was, we're not getting to that level here, Your Honors.
3: So we don't have a cause of death. Um, what if the victim died of a heart attack? We don't know if that, is, that was a possibility or not. Isn't that a problem when we don't know the cause of death?
4: It's always better, right? <laughs> to, have a cer- well, yeah. to have a certainty would be... You, well, you
3: can't have conspiracy to commit murder if he had a heart attack.
4: Correct, Your Honor. So, Unless
3: they caused the heart attack, which I don't know how you can do that, but
4: possibly there is a way. I, correct, and I do want to point out, cause of death is not an element of any of these offenses. It's not an
3: element, And we do
4: know that he didn't have a heart attack. <laughs> do we, we, do that, that? Do we, we do know that? We do know that it was not natural causes. Mm-hmm. The autopsy tells us there was no trauma, and that there was no, um, none of the internal organs failed there, so that we can say this was a heart attack or he had cancer and we didn't know it. Everything isn't that we looked unusual? at was that his heart, I'm sorry, Your Honor, go ahead. I was
3: gonna say, isn't it unusual that you don't have a cause of death identified?
4: It's more unusual, yes, but it, you know, it certainly happens and it, and it makes a lot of sense in this case given the conspiracy that we're looking at. And given that that's exactly what they were going for, is that they wouldn't be able to find a cause of death because the poisoning had already left his system.
3: Why were the mushrooms found in his stomach not tested by the state?
4: (laughs) I don't have an answer for that. And the main reason that I could gather is that what we're looking for is poison in him not necessarily what was in the mushroom. So they didn't find poison in his body? They did not find poison in his body, which was, there was some explanation that, hey, the half-life of this poison is very short, so the longer he remained dead, the less likely it was that we were gonna find any poison. But there was no level of toxin, which again goes to, you know, this wasn't an accident, and it wasn't, a, you know, natural, it wasn't his antidepressant, it, this was a homicide and we can't prove that it was these mushrooms necessarily because the the poisoning has already left but we do know that was the only thing in his stomach and it was i mean it's quite odd for a 220 pound man to eat a handful of mushrooms for dinner and call it a night so that's another you know piece of circumstantial evidence that hey maybe he didn't eat those voluntarily so The fact that we can't necessarily nail down a cause of death doesn't make this any less of a homicide. And our experts were very clear that this was a homicide. And all the things that you discussed earlier, Judge, are other pieces of circumstantial evidence that show, hey, his ankles were taped, his wrists were taped, the liver mortis doesn't add up, he died on his back on a hard surface, we find him face down in a ditch, someone put him there. And all the, uh, all the other evidence helps us prove who that was. So the evidence in this case, Your Honors, was sufficient to prove <clears throat> that defendant committed some conspiracy to commit murder and failure to report. And if Your Honors have no other questions.
0: Thank you, Ms. Williams. Thank you.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Wiggins, I'm getting all these names wrong. Ms. Wiggins.
1: judges as you can tell from your questions and, and from our arguments this case has so there's so much involved here um, that we're never going to get through everything that we want to talk about so I need to make a point very strongly the motion in limine that was filed on the Friday afternoon before this trial started that motion in limine was a request by the appellant at that time the defendant to keep out of evidence this statement uh, that they wanted to call a confession uh, at trial the judge granted that motion in limine with a caveat that said Um, I'm granting this motion at least through opening argument, afterwards you must approach and ask. That's our big problem with the prosecutorial misconduct here. That statement came into evidence in a rather innocuous way, not objected to, admittedly. But the Deputy Prosecutor did not approach the judge and say, hey, we're getting ready to bring this statement and do we need to do anything before the jury comes out? Then he did it twice in rebuttal argument, neither time approaching the judge and saying, I'm about to call this statement a confession. And is there something we need to tell the jury? I asked her or I stated to her, you have to know at this point, we know that you killed David. And there was a pause and she said, I know. The deputy prosecutor's last words to the jury were, you heard Detective Lockhart's testimony, you heard her admission, you heard her words. I I know she's a murderer, I know it, she knows it, now you all know it. That bell cannot be unrung, I've said that before. That's what the jury heard before they walked into the room and started deliberating.
3: But that's argument, and jury instructions are given that closing arguments are just that, arguments, and the jury is left to decide the facts of the case.
1: And I agree with you, Judge, and they were so instructed. However, jurors are human, and juries, I am sure, I've talked to a few, are loath to convict on circumstantial evidence. Juries want videos. They want clear confessions. They want something to hang their hat on before they convict a fellow citizen of a crime. In this case, they had essentially nothing until the last two sentences spoken by the deputy prosecutor in violation of that motion in limine.
3: But you said there was an admission. I'm sorry? What you quoted was that the prosecutor said that that there was an admission. And the state and defense counsel agreed that what she stated was an admission. The question was whether it was a confession.
1: I don't think the defense counsel ever agreed that there was an admission or a a confession. We still maintain that the way it was used by the prosecutor in closing argument why it was a confession. And the bottom line remains that the statement came in in violation of a court order. The judge said you must approach to ask, and, and the deputy prosecutor did not do it on three separate occasions when he used that statement, once in evidence and twice in a rebuttal argument. But,
0: but isn't it more critical that, that the defense didn't object? I believe. During the motion in limine, you have to object during trial.
1: During trial, correct. Okay. Um, but the motion was granted. The, the order was made. Um, uh, As my time winds down, I want to make another point here. The state points to a lot of circumstantial evidence about this conspiracy agreement between uh, Katrina Faust and Terry Hopkins. Terry Hopkins was a retired police detective. Um, At times they called him a seasoned detective who some of his actions would prove that he knows how to cover up a crime. This was a man who went and purchased items at Harbor Freights as some of the overt acts alleged in the conspiracy and signed up for a frequent shoppers card or something like that and left his name, address, uh, may have even used a credit card, I can't remember, on every purchase. He had evidence they found in his vehicle some three days after Katrina Fouts knew they were investigating her, searching her property, searching her vehicles. There were other items found in a a manner of timing that cannot be explained that a seasoned police detective would leave lying around if he just committed a murder. There's no logic to it. This case is built on nothing but speculation, conjecture, guesses, and a drumbeat of evidence that had no actual foundation in fact, mushroom experts testifying, toxicologists theorizing about what a toxin can do to you in your body, um, purported confessions that were come in, in violation of a motion in limine, um, a stack of things. And I believe this jury never would have convicted but for those last two sentences uttered by uh, the Deputy Prosecutor, and in my last few seconds I would just ask on behalf of Mrs. Fouts that the conviction be vacated. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Mr. Grass. I want to thank counsel for a very well done argument. Really has raised a lot of thoughts for our consideration. Thank you so much. And we are in recess now, and we will come forward to answer any questions. I want to thank everybody. Okay. Before we do that, I guess we're going to thank everybody first. And we want to thank especially uh, Mr. Swisher, social studies teacher here. Thank you so much.